The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. PhD, a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council, has practiced Insight Meditation since 1976 and has also received training in Joshian and Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy. A former teacher at the University of Kentucky, Kenyon College, and Saybrook Graduate School, he currently writes and teaches classes, groups, and retreats on meditation, daily life practice, spirituality, and psychology, and socially engaged Buddhism in the San Francisco Bay Area and nationally. An organizer, teacher, and former board member for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, he is the guiding teacher for the two-year Spirit Rock program, Path of Engagement. He is the author of The Engaged Spiritual Life, A Buddhist Approach to Transforming Ourselves and the World, and the co-editor of Ken Wilbur in Dialogue, Conversations with Leading Transpersonal Thinkers. Welcome back to IMC, Donald. Thanks very much. I'm um, pleased to be here again to see a number of uh, familiar faces and some people whom I don't believe I've met yet. Um, So I wanted to talk this morning uh, more generally on the theme of um, the spiritual journey and the phases of that journey, um, really how we can see our lives. And I want to do so in a way which I hope can uh, energize and inspire us uh, to give some perspective perhaps to have us understand uh, maybe in a different perspective some of the experiences of our, of our lives. And I was, I was inspired uh, to explore this theme in part by uh, helping to teach the two-month retreat at Spirit Rock. Um, I was one of the teachers for March and uh, reflected a lot on some of the larger patterns of spiritual practice. So what I, what I want to uh, do today is to um, really look at that theme of the spiritual journey with three main reference points. Uh, One of them is a poem that I want to read probably at the beginning and uh, also I think at the end, um, a poem uh, by uh, Mary Oliver called The Journey. Some of you know this poem. It's a wonderful poem. I was thinking of making copies for everyone, but I thought it might be more efficient to let you use Google, especially because of the locale. And, and then the, so the first reference point is this poem, which I'll read in a moment. The second reference point is um, each of our lives and our own sense of the kind of journey that each of us is um, carrying out, really. And the third reference point, the third reference point is the journey of the Buddha, the historical journey of the Buddha which, when we look at it, actually is a little less pat, a little less easy than we find in some of the stories. And in uh, reflecting on the life of the Buddha, I was particularly inspired by one of my colleagues' uh, talks at the March retreat, which was, on the, which was particularly focused on the life of the Buddha. And I also refer you to that talk, which is on Dharma Seed, 
on the on the web, uh, talk by Larry Yang. On the, uh, I think it's it'll be his last talk for March. If you want to look that up. So I was also quite inspired by that. And for for those of you not uh, familiar with the uh, life story of the Buddha, I just want to give a very uh, short version of it. Uh, you know that the Buddha was born into a royal family. He was a prince. He was um, uh, protected. His parents received a prophecy that he would either be a great sage or a great ruler. And they were invested in the second outcome. <laughs> and so they protected him. And, and there are lines in some of the texts where, he's, where the Buddha says, I was most delicately brought up. <laughs> you know, he was protected and not permitted uh, to see any sign of difficulty or suffering. There was comfort all around. And many of you know that at a certain point, he had some curiosity about life beyond the palace. You can take that as a metaphor. I'll explore that later. And he went outside the palace. And so the story goes, on successive nights, he came in contact with uh, an old person, a sick person, a corpse, and a wandering mendicant or yogi. And that uh, really encounter with difficulty or suffering shook him to his core. And he resolved to leave his protected environment in search of spiritual truth. Went on a search for six years, which had many ups and downs, was not some easy process. And eventually, very much uh, came to his own path, really, to, to find this truth. Had an awakening, a powerful awakening. And, um, and then, uh, sometime after the awakening, decided to bring it back to the world and to teach, which he, and he taught for 45 years and affected the course of history. And of course, there are many other beings who have some parallel stories. We have the lives of many uh, figures who have had a kind of, really a similar kind of search or have battled um, difficulties and come to some kind of, kind of uh, awakening or breakthrough. So that's what I want to explore. I hope to uh, finish with some time for discussions. One of my favorite aspects of teaching is to connect with people. So I think we finish right at 10.45, right? So I'll have to, I'll have to do the entirety of the spiritual journey in about half an hour. <laughs> okay. if, if we want to have some discussion. Okay, so here's the poem, first of all. The Journey by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the, the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds 
and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So I'll explore this theme of the spiritual journey in part by uh, coming back and referring to, uh, to the poem and to particular lines in the poem. But I wanted to say first just a little bit about the, the idea of the journey. It's a metaphor. It's very, very commonly used that we're on a kind of a journey. It's very similar in a sense to the metaphor uh, of the path. You know, that there's a sense that we're walking, we're in movement. We are going down a road. We are, in a sense, looking for something. We are going in some direction. And, of course, a path is a little more of a a clearer journey, we might say, because many of our journeys, we don't know where we're going. And in, in some sense, our life is sometimes like a journey and we don't quite know where we're going, or sometimes we don't know where we're going, and something happens and we learn where we're going. <laughs> or, um, what was I was remembering, what was that famous line by Yogi Berra? He says something like, you, um, uh, I think I'm, I'm forgetting it. Do anyone remember that? About, yes. yes. <laughs> I think and he said something else also if you if you don't know where you're going you might not get there <laughs> so the journey is, is a powerful metaphor and the path again very common metaphor but it's a sense of walking a sense of movement and path is I think a little more distinct because it it has a sense that uh, there's been a kind of a clearing. We can walk on a path. Maybe we have a sense of the underbrush or the difficulties or the obstacles have been cleared some and we can walk. So a path is a little more, little more uh, the, the movement is a little clearer. We're often in uh, a particular direction. And, and, and yet we do it really in a sense step by step. The very word for path in the Buddhist text, some of you know the, this text called the Dhammapada, the word pod is, we have the same root in um, Indo-European languages, uh, refers to the foot, like a podiatrist, right? So the pod is the word for path. And it's something we do by walking. It's really step by step, in a sense, moment by moment. So it's it's a beautiful metaphor that we're on a journey. We don't always know where we're going, but sometimes we do. Sometimes the path becomes clearer. And so... The, I think the poem and the life of the Buddha really bring out a few phases of our, of our uh, paths. And I want to refer to those phases. The first we might call, this is really about uh, um, the bad advice. Uh, that we, that we, the first phase is when we have a certain kind of discontent with the way things are. There's a, maybe there's a certain kind of suffering or difficulty and that comes up in our life. Um, a second phase is when we hear the call to something different. We hear uh, maybe an internal voice that says, let me, 
Let me move away from the familiar conditioning. And then a third phase is what is we might say we leave, we depart, we move out from the, from the familiar in certain ways. And then a, a fourth phase, really in a sense, um, the heart of it, is where we go through the process, the ups and downs of coming to greater awakening. We might, we might say we go through a certain difficulty, we go through a certain struggle, and we come towards that greater awakening. And then the fifth phase is that we, we return, in a sense, to our lives, to, to the world. And I think all of those are right there in the poem. So, um, you know, first there is the sense of the, um, the bad advice. You know, it's uh, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. And I think this is about our conditioning. You know, it's our our forms of suffering. You know, we, we, uh, we look at that in our meditation. You know, a lot of meditation is the detailed study of the bad advice that we've received and that we keep giving ourselves. <laughs> we listen to our own voices, right? I remember something I heard from Gil uh, a while ago, which has really stayed, which he, he said once, if there was anyone who repeated what we repeat to ourselves. If there was another person who was kind of outside of ourselves who repeated to ourselves what we tell to ourselves continually, we would consider that person the most obnoxious person on the earth. (laughs) And of course, there's sometimes good advice, but I think this first phase is when we start um, having a sense of um, seeing some of the conditioning, seeing maybe not being satisfied with what's going on, that there's some questioning, some, maybe some, some discontent. You know, maybe there's the sense that um, um, maybe I've succeeded in certain ways, but something else calls me. You know, or there's a line from uh, Joseph Campbell, who was the person who wrote the book, The Hero's Journey, which is, gives one model of these different phases, and other people have done other versions. There was a woman who wrote a a book called The Heroine's Journey, which said it's a little different for for women. And and one of the starting points that Campbell identified, he said, you may have climbed the ladder, you may get to midlife, and you may realize, I climbed the ladder, but it was set against the wrong wall. (laughs) So we, we may have succeeded in certain ways. But there still can be a sense of that dissatisfaction, something more, something, something is not quite right, where I've succeeded, but my life is too busy or overly scheduled or doesn't have the depth that I want. You know? And that comes to all of us. Maybe for many of us, that's part of the reason that we're here, you know, that we're here. Um, and there may also be uh, certain experiences that, we, that we've had which make us wonder about the conventional way our lives are structured. You know, there may be sometimes uh, early in life, you know, you may have had experiences, I think most of us probably had experiences as children that made us question the way, question the way things are. You know, I know for myself, you know, when I was four or five, there was something that really struck me about um, 
encountering the cruelty of other kids. And maybe you've had similar experiences. I, one experience I remember, I don't know if, it was, if this is universal, but when I w- went to kindergarten for the first day, the first and second graders taunted us. I don't know if that happens throughout the country, but they said, kindergarten babies soaked in the gravy. <laughs> you know, and this is my... This is my first experience going to kindergarten, and it was, you know, I mean, looking back, there can be some humor, but it was actually, um, it, it, was, it was awful. As, you know, in the lived experience of a four or five-year-old, it was an awful experience, and I, and I had to say, where, did, where does that cruelty come from? You know, it's so something shook me. You know, and there were maybe were other experiences I can remember as a kid, just what is this, you know, where there may have been experiences of betrayal from people close to me. You know, or I remember also I grew up in a part of Maryland which was, was a town where there was like a railroad tracks through the middle and on one side of the tracks were a lot of relatively poor whites recently come from Appalachia. The other side of the town were poor blacks and then there was the town and then beyond the town there were growing suburbs. You know, and spending time in the black part of town, you know, as a, as a little kid, because I, you know, I went to school with some of the people there, it was really like, what is this? What are these divisions? Because it was very poor, where there weren't paved roads, you know, and what is this? And again, I, I imagine that most of us had something like that, maybe as children, or maybe it came later as adults. I know for myself, um, you know, really coming in my, as a teenager and later, uh, coming of age during the time of the Vietnam War and just being and learning about war and violence and um, you know, some of the foreign policy uh, of this country and just learning about the reality of the world. These were shocks to my system and, and something in me said, why is this? You know, why, is, why, is, why isn't there kindness? Why is there cruelty? And this made this kind of, of course, this can sometimes be difficult for us and can shut us down, but it also can open us up to questioning. You know, or it might be something like um, a midlife crisis. For many of us, maybe came to this practice because we had some encounter with what was difficulty, maybe an illness of our, our own illness or a friend's illness, something happening in the family. And it's, it was both difficult, but something woke up and said, I want to go more deeply. I want my life to be deeper. You know, and the Buddha had that experience as well. You know, he had that experience of uh, going outside the palace and meeting, encountering an old man the first night. And in the text, you know, there are these lines where it says, like, he asked his charioteer who took him out there what is this? And he said, this is called an old man. <laughs> you know, he did not know that experience. You know, and, he, and, and in the text it talks about how this old man was uh, really infirm, both in, in body and in mind. And, he said, and then the Buddha asked him, is this old man unique? Or is, are there many old men? And, does, and the charioteer says, this happens to everyone. And he was shocked. And something like that happened encountering a sick person, encountering a dead person. 
and then encountering someone who was on a spiritual search. And this, this shook him. So we all have, may have something like that that has at times uh, shaken us, had a big impact. I and mean, we may, we may uh, want to um, look for what, the, um, what is deeper. How do, we, how do we understand this? The Buddha wanted to understand whether life was simply about getting old and dying. Is there something else? Is there other, some other dimension to things? And then there's the, the, the hearing of the call, you know, that uh, in the text uh, it says, one day you finally knew what you had to do. And it repeats this, you knew what you had to do. It's very interesting. In the, in the text of the Buddha, it's often said that someone who goes on a spiritual path and brings it to conclusion did what had to be done. That's the translation, you know. And so there's this this sense of the calling, that one doesn't stay with the conditioning. And the call, you know, the call or the, the call to something else uh, doesn't come just once, but it can come many, many times. That's very interesting. We may get the call, you know, and say, what is this as a four-year-old, as a five-year-old? And then it maybe comes again as a 13-year-old, as an 18-year-old. And, Maybe it comes, you know, as an adult in, in big ways, many times. So we get this call and something is inviting us to, to, um, to find really that true voice. You know, in, in the text in, of the poem, it says, you, you, one eventually finds one tr- one's true voice. And there, it's very interesting and we sometimes talk about that as finding one's deeper vocation. And the actual etymology of the word vocation refers to hearing a voice. Vox, you know, the word for voice, is there in the word vocation. And there's a beautiful passage from uh, Carl Jung where he says that true vocation is hearing one's deep inner voice and following it. So there's something about hearing that call and um, really moving with one's authentic voice. And it's hard to find that authentic voice. You know, in, in the poem it says, um, you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life. And later it says that the road was full of fallen branches and stones. It's hard, you know, we have these other people telling us what to do. You know, one of the difficulties of when we really make some changes, we have a lot of people around us telling us if you change, I will suffer. You know, it's very common. You know, and, and so there are, the, there are these lonely aspects to this path, of course. Right? And there are these, these times of uncertainty and not knowing um, what will happen or thinking we may lose something. You know, the Buddha actually um, had to choose to follow his vocation or to stay with his family. He had a young child and a wife. And he, he, left, he left them for, for a number of years. And it would, the, the inner struggle was, was a lot for him. Yeah. And so there is that. You know, there is, um, that inner voice is hard to find at times. I, I remember one of the times where, where there was really a kind of a breakthrough was in, for me when the early 
days when I was um, doing retreats and learning to meditate. And I was uh, on a retreat at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And I was feeling uh, fear. I was doing walking meditation next to uh, people. And I suddenly felt fear and I didn't know what it was. And I just, I remember stopping. You know, this, this was a long time ago, but I remember stopping and just saying, why am I afraid? And I didn't know why I was afraid. And I just stopped. And something happened that hadn't happened in, that, in, a, in the way it happened before, which was that I got an inner voice telling me why I was afraid, as it were, telling me the truth. You know, it was not something I had to tell anyone else. It was very private in a way. And there was, but for me, there was some, and the, the message I got was, I'm actually afraid of these people because I perceive them as powerful. And that's scary for me. There was something like that. And that was, that was an important message in itself. But in some ways, what was more powerful was personally having a kind of an activation of uh, something inside that was at a little deeper level that told me what was true. It was very powerful. I, um, on that retreat, I kept on using it. I kept on saying, okay, what's true right now? <laughs> you know, what's true right now? And I, I, I found it extremely useful. Like I'd be in a situation and I wouldn't feel comfortable. And I would say, what's this about? And there would be some kind of truthful response almost all the time. And it was, was, um, you know, I I likened it later to what the Quakers call the still small voice. You know, it was very private. It was personal. It had a lot of authenticity to it. And it wasn't always easy to follow. (laughs) Right? And probably many of us, or most of us, have some access to that, or maybe have had some kind of experience like that where something like that gets activated. You know, and how do we follow that? How do we, you know, how do we know it? There's a lot of um, bad advice that covers that over, right? Whether our own voices or the voices of the outside. So how do we, how do we follow that deeper impulse? It's, it's a huge, it's a huge question. And so, we know, know what we have to do. We hear that voice. That voice starts um, getting stronger. And in some ways we leave this third phase. We, we leave that trembling house. The whole house began to tremble. You know? and, I, and in the poem, uh, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But, but somehow one leaves. One summons the energy uh, to leave, to leave the conventional patterns, perhaps, or it's going to be different for everyone, but in some way, make a break with the old pattern that is no longer helpful. You know? And somehow we leave, we, it may be we leave a relationship, or we leave a job, or we start a relationship, or we start a new job, or we cut, we, we I don't know, move to California. <laughs> Solves everything, right? <laughs> Almost everything. Um, and so we, we, in some way, find a way to shift. Or maybe, maybe it was to really make a commitment to our practice. Something like that. We, we, we leave. And as we do that, that you know, the, the fourth phase 
I, I wanted to connect with this finding your own voice. Little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own. So that new voice comes more and more to the fore. I think a lot of spiritual practice is in fact, as it were, coming to be with the static and the conditioning and the bad advice enough so that we touch something authentic whether it's the authenticity of just being directly with emotions or with the body or with what we really want. I find that meditation practice takes me continually back to my authentic voice. And sometimes when I've had difficult decisions, maybe should I take this work or not or do this or that, um, I've, I've taken a few days for meditation because invariably I find on retreats there's something gets cleared away and I have more um, access to that deeper voice, what I really want. It does get covered over, doesn't it, in our daily lives. It's hard, you know. That's why we need these times away from that to some extent. And it's not easy, you know, it's not easy in this process of finding one's own voice the other side of it is that we work through challenges and difficulties. This, this phase of, that I'm calling finding one's own voice is also a phase when we kind of have struggles and ups and downs on the, on, as, we, as we awaken more. You know, and the Buddha, we may think from the story that he just went out and got enlightened and that was that. But when you read the account, he was six years searching had a lot of difficulties. He was close to death at times. He came to question all of his teachers. He had periods of fear, periods of confusion. And that's part of, that's part of our path. You know, one, of the, one of the reasons that I like to explore the, these um, stages or phases of practice is that can really help us to frame uh, where we're at, particularly if we feel a little stuck. That stuckness or struggle, when we're in the midst of it, it's hard. You know? Or if we're in a, a, a year-long phase, which is a little bit more struggle or trying to find our way, it's not easy. So it's helpful for me to know that this comes with the territory. It helps a little. <laughs> you know? And sometimes it helps a lot to have that, have that perspective or to maybe have friends who've gone through that and then they, they know what we're experiencing and they, and they can say that in some sense you have to stay with it for a while. You know, and if you stay with it with that authentic voice leading, there can be movement. It's a difficult process. This awakening process is not easy. It's difficult. And one of, you know, one of the challenges that we have is that kind of paradoxically, as we awaken more, we criticize ourselves for having been asleep. And we can get caught in that. I know I, that was very interesting for me to see that a lot, you know, that as I'm awakening, I mean, there's a certain way that we actually do grieve for when we were asleep or stuck, and that's important and real. But we can also get unbalanced in that and criticize ourselves as we're awakening. But, and that, in, in a sense, may be an old pattern. You know, so there can be that self-judgment and that 
criticism as we awaken. But as we, as we come more and more to that authentic voice, things shift and we're more and more doing what we feel needs to be done, you know, or what really expresses our gifts. You know, so I think it's one of the signs that, of this path and following this path that we, we move more and more into an expression of our deeper gifts. You know, in, in a way, you know, a phrase I like is, we take our stand on the earth. I like that phrase. We take our stand on the earth. It's very much like when the Buddha was questioned about his own awakening, he put his hand on the earth, asking the earth to be his witness for his awakening. You know, where there's a beautiful line from um, the great uh, African-American mystic and theologian, um, Howard Thurman, who was once asked by a young man, what should I do? And he was uh, you know, an activist. He set up one of the first uh, interracial churches in the Bay Area. And you might think that he would answer by saying, well, you know, we really have a need for a few people doing this. We're doing this, or you know, there's this campaign here. You know, we really need people. He said, rather radically, don't ask what the world needs. Rather, ask what makes you come alive. What the world needs is people who have come alive. Right? So there's, that has something to do with this authentic voice. You know, it's going to be different for different ones of us. Some of us may take a more conventional spiritual path. Some of us may hear our calling to really help heal the earth at this time of need. That can be a powerful calling for probably for many of us. Or it could be to really excel in work or to be, you know, deeply committed to family. It can take all sorts of expressions. And then eventually we come back to the world and we, we offer, as it were, our gifts to the world, having gone through this process. You know, and the Buddha comes back and he starts teaching. At first, um, reluctantly. You know, but he is convinced that there are a few people who will hear me. At first he thought, no one will listen. It's too simple. No one will listen the sense of just letting go of where we're stuck. But he said he was convinced by one of the deities who came down and told him, there are a few with but little dust over their eyes. They will listen. <laughs> now there are more people with little dust in, over their eyes. <laughs> so we come back into the world and we we see what, again, we see what it is that, that needs to be done. We do, in a sense, uh, as Mary Oliver says, the only thing you know, that, we, that we can do, in a sense. We, we have a sense of our vocation more and more as we, as we follow this. I think I'll just end reading the poem again so I can have a little bit of time for discussion. Uh, so here's the poem again. And remember, listen for those five uh, phases of, let me see what they, the five phases of uh, kind of seeing our suffering and our conditioning, uh, hearing the call, departing, uh, finding our own voice, sometimes with struggle, and then going deeper into the world or entering back into the world. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop 
You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds. And there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Thank you for your kind attention. We have time maybe just for one or two questions, please. Yeah, yeah, we, there's a interesting question. I mean, because it very, it's very much relates to how we take that story, you know, which, which I think it is helpful to, as it were, take a lot of the aspects more, maybe more psychologically, you know, and to uh, know that this may have aspects of myth or that certain truths were told through the vehicle of the story and, they, and the same truths can come in different ways. So that, you know, for, you know, when I told my story, there were, you know, there was a certain level of protection. And yet there was some openness to see to certain kinds of suffering. You know, so I think, you know, I, I interpret the story as the Buddha had an extremely um, protected life, you know, and According to the story, his father, it was his parents were almost uh, maniacal about trying to create some fictional world, you know. And I think for me, it's less important to, you know, look into the details of that, but just to say, what does this mean for me? And you know, I think I think it's very interesting. I found it very helpful to look back into my own childhood and to ask when. Did I have difficulty with my own upbringing, or not, maybe not with so much with what my parents did, but with the more the social or cultural setting? And that was <clears throat> that was very that's very very interesting. And the you know like like you say the um, encounter with 
uh, <clears throat> old age or sickness or death, we, that occurs to us in all sorts of ways. Right? And it can occur as a child, it can occur as a young adult, it can occur as an adult, it can occur ourselves as we, uh, as we age. Yeah. So many, many, many ways. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe just, uh, I think this will have to be the last one, sorry. Okay, thank you so much for your wonderful talk. Uh, one of the aspects of the Buddha's, uh, the, the metaphor and the stories about his going out, following his own voice, going out, and his teaching was, how did he come back home? How did he come back to his wife, his child, his yeah. family? There's very little about that part of his life, and I've always been intrigued because yeah. that's a part of coming into our own voice and yeah. learning, reclaiming parts of our lives that we've yeah. let go of or lost on our journeys. So that's an interesting part yeah. I'd yeah. like to know more about. Yeah, that, that return is a very important aspect. Again, it's, it's cro across cultures. You know, it's, some of you know the story of Plato and the cave in, in, in Greek philosophy, you know, where the journey of awakening is to go outside of the dark cave where one just looks at shadows and go into the sunlight. But then one's told after you've been in the sunlight, go back into the cave and help take care of people. Or it's the bodhisattva in Buddhist tradition who maybe has the potential of having a private awakening but commits to helping others. So there's a lot of compassion there and there's a lot of really not staying isolated you know, so that, that I think um, that quality of return or in, in the Zen tradition, there's that sense of after one has gone on the path of enlightenment, one enters, re-enters the marketplace with bliss bestowing hands is the phrase. You know, so it's quite, it's quite remarkable. And I think it occurs in all sorts of ways. Um, yeah, for the Buddha, it was a little bit in, indirect. Of course, he didn't have models. And and he came back and he eventually became very, very close with his wife and child. His child, they both became students of him, right? Disciples and were very close. And some of the most beautiful texts are his guidance to his own son, you know, in the, in the text, the very beautiful text. So there's some sense of return that for him was a rather um, winding path, you know, and, it, and it's, it's not always predictable how we return, but there's some sense of, um, maybe it's very much like the shaman. The shaman goes on this private journey or voyage, but always the purpose is always for the sake of the community. And so the return, I think, has something to do with a sense of connection and compassion. Because the awakening is a lot about seeing into the conditioning, seeing into the suffering, and in a lot of traditions, it's expressed that when one has that awakening, one's also very tuned in to those who are more stuck, like oneself was at maybe a previous time. You know, it's relative, right? You know, I'm, we can be at stage three and see those relatively stuck at stage one and those at stage five look at us and see us as relatively stuck. Right? So it's somewhat, somewhat relative. But, um, but I think there's something about compassion here. It's kind of a, thank you, thank you, Rob. It's a nice way to um, to finish really with the, with the morning to really have all of this 
both opens us up to that inner voice, but also to compassion. So it's a sweet way to um, bring, bring that framing. So, and again, maybe I'll just end with a dedication of merit, which is a traditional way that I think often um, sessions are ended here, and very much in the spirit of compassion, which is that we remember that we do this practice not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may the benefits of our practice strengthen ourselves, strengthen those we're close to, and may ultimately the benefits of our practice be offered out to all those we come in contact and then beyond that immediate realm of contact, mysteriously often, to all other beings. Thanks again for your kind attention. I could stay for another hour or two, but we we have our schedule. (laughs) 